Welcome to the Friday Five, a series in which we cover important stories in health and science research that you may have missed. Usually I talk about studies over the previous week, but today I'm doing a look back on breakthrough research over the month of October. There are plenty of controversies and ethical issues in science, and we get into many of them in our online magazine. But there are also lots of stories to be excited about, and this news roundup is focused on scientific work to give you a therapeutic dose of inspiration headed into the weekend. First up in the Friday Five, if you never quite got over your childhood obsession with superheroes, and maybe have shelves or entire rooms lined with your favorite action figures, there's good news out of Stanford this month. Scientists there are getting closer to making what amounts to a real Iron Man suit, custom made for your body and the way that you walk. Now, maybe one day this could help you fly around and battle your enemies, but a little bit more pressingly, it can make a huge difference for people with mobility issues. Scientists have actually been working on these suits for decades, but these boots were made for walking with the help of AI, which used sensors to understand exactly how an individual walks, the length and speed of their steps, and how much energy they're using as they go. This human-in-the-loop optimization, as the Stanford team calls it, results in a person moving 9% faster while saving 17% on their energy use, an effect similar to taking off a weight vest of 30 pounds. These numbers easily beat other boots that have been made in the past. Now they need to be tested to see how many older people can actually benefit from them in the real world. If that goes well, people of any age who have mobility issues could gain more confidence in their movement, have fewer falls, and enjoy overall higher quality of life. The boots could also be used by people who have to stand or walk all day for their jobs to help with the joint problems that can develop from that type of work. You never know, UPS drivers may be able, one day in the future, to deliver packages just like Tony Stark chasing a jet. Next up on the Friday Five, I saw an article in Bon Appetit magazine last month saying it's a myth that late night dining is unhealthy on its own. Despite the really reputable Healthline article they cited for this assertion, it actually flies in the face of the research done in this area, which shows that eating later can increase the risk of becoming obese. And now researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital have shown exactly why. In a new paper published in Cell Metabolism, the chronobiologists did a study on 16 people with obesity. The people in the study each spent two days hanging out in a lab while getting meals on an early schedule, and then later on they were brought back into the lab for another two days of late-night goodies. The actual food eaten was exactly the same for the two-day period, and they had the exact same physical activity, sleep, and light exposure. The researchers even put them on posture schedules to make sure they didn't spend more time in upright positions because that could affect digestion, and because the researchers were apparently drunk on their own power. The only difference in their daily regimen was the timing of their meals. Meanwhile, the scientists hovered over them, picked and prodded, and did everything but dissect them taking numerous blood samples, measuring their body temperature and the amount of energy they used, and cutting pieces of tissue out of them to see how certain genes were being expressed. The results were striking. On the two days when the people bedtime munched, they had much less of a hormone called leptin that tells us we're full and don't need to eat anymore. These late-night eaters burned calories more slowly, their gene expression was geared toward growing new fat, and their balance of energy was all out of whack. Over 40% of Americans are obese, which often leads to cancer, diabetes, and other diseases. So, you'll probably want to say bon appetit before 7 p.m. if you're interested in avoiding these problems. Next up in the Friday Five, a big thing right now for neuroscientists is to experiment with drugs for different diseases like COVID-19, autism, and schizophrenia by testing them out on little brains in the lab. How little? These organoids are no bigger than 5 millimeters wide. 
but they're critical because they allow research on questions you can't explore with real brains and living people because they might stop living. The problem with these mini-brains is that scientists haven't agreed on the right way to make them. But researchers at UCLA made important progress on this front with a new study published in Stem Cell Reports. To create organoids, the general recipe is for scientists to reprogram older versions of human cells to become pluripotent stem cells, a sort of blank slate that can grow into any type of cell you want. We know how to make them grow into neurons, the cells that make up the brain, and then we can also get them to clump together into the mini-brains. The UCLA researchers' breakthrough finding was that the best approach is to get the cells to become neurons that clump together right after you've reprogrammed them, rather than letting them sit around. That'll help make sure they turn into brain tissue that's as close as possible to a real brain, which actually makes sense because when embryos are developing, neurons are the ones that form really early on. The researchers then played around with how to keep the stem cells in an early stage of development. And they learned they can do this by adding four specific kinds of molecules to the stem cells while they're growing in their dishes. The scientists will now be looking at which genes lead to high-quality organoids, as another factor in their mad scientist mini-brain guidelines. Having agreed upon guidelines will help make sure scientists can repeat each other's findings on organoids from one lab to the next. And new research out of Indiana University could help kids decide which sports they want to play if they're keeping in mind their long-term health, something that kids aren't exactly known for. The scientists looked at young women who ran cross-country for their colleges and found that those who had chosen at too early of an age, around middle school, to focus entirely on running were the ones who had developed with less bone mass and less bone size. This put them at higher risk of injuries, such as stress fractures and other bone breaks, as college athletes. But they'll also be at higher risk for these injuries throughout their lives. The same issue applies to other sports like running, where you're just going in one direction the whole time, like swimming and cycling. But the college women in the study who had played other sports where you move in lots of different directions, with less of the exact same type of repetitive impact, like basketball or tennis, had 10 to 20% stronger bones than those who'd focused only on running when they were younger. Based on their research, the Indiana University team thinks that it's best to hold off on specializing in these one-direction sports until kids get to their first year of high school. And the researchers added that, even if a kid already plays multi-direction sports, it's also key to enjoy a number of rest periods throughout the year to avoid overuse injuries and develop strong bones that last a lifetime. Next up, virtual reality headsets can be a great tool for staying healthy with exercise and meditation, but it's also increasingly proven to help people who are sick. The latest example is a study involving people with a type of constant indigestion that affects 10 to 30% of people worldwide. It's called functional dyspepsia, and symptoms include nausea, heartburn, bloating, and stomach pain. In a study by researchers at the Mayo Clinic, people with functional dyspepsia were divided into two groups, one that watched videos of nature on flat screens, while the other group wore virtual reality headsets to immerse themselves in these scenes. They used these technologies at least once per day for a couple of weeks. Both groups saw improvements in how they felt, but whereas the group watching in 2D saw their scores of quality of life measured by a commonly used index of dyspepsia go up, the virtual reality group jumped much higher on this index. The VR seems to help people by distracting them from their pain and getting them to focus on thoughts and feelings that aren't related to their discomfort. Currently, there are no treatments blessed by the FDA for functional dyspepsia, and this was a small study with just 37 adults, but it's the first study to look at VR for this particular issue. 
The FDA does already recognize VR as a novel therapy for other purposes, such as cognitive behavioral therapy and chronic back pain. Going forward, the team at Mayo Clinic is looking to expand to larger and longer trials. As always, you can find links to each study I've discussed this week in the show notes. And please check out the leaps.org magazine online where you can learn about the latest and most important challenges and developments in science, such as this week, a great article on the ethical and medical issues involved in keeping the identities of sperm and egg donors anonymous. Overall, the leaps.org platform looks at innovations through the lens of rational optimism. You can find out what to be concerned about, but we also tell you which scientific breakthroughs are giving reason for excitement. Thanks for listening to the Friday Five, and have a great weekend.